Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune and this week's episode is Lady Margaret Beaufort. Part four. Before I even start this week, please remember to get your questions in for the end of the series Q&A and review episode. As I mentioned last week, this episode also happens to fall on the week of my 40th birthday. So I'd consider it a wee bit of a birthday present if I got lots of questions. Thank you in advance for that. Now on with the show. So the conclusion of Lady Margaret Beaufort's story. Last week, she was assisting her son in his handling of the uprising of Lambert Seminole, an uprising I will cover in more detail in Elizabeth of York's episodes, due to Seminole's claims. While Margaret wasn't leading men into battle, her influence on her son and her power within court would help him remain secure on his throne. After this uprising, Margaret likely encouraged her son to take further steps to secure this throne. Remember, while he had married Elizabeth of York, she still had sisters and a cousin who could be used in future plots if they weren't safely married off. Two were of marriageable age, Elizabeth's sister Cecily and Margaret Plantagenet, their cousin through George of Clarence. Margaret was rather fond of Cecily. There are multiple reports of the care they showed towards each other. Margaret had the perfect husband for Cecily, her younger half-brother, John Wells. While he wasn't a prince, or even a duke, he was loyal to the Lancastrian cause, and apparently made a kind husband. Cecily had been married previously, but that union had been dissolved. It was made in haste at Richard III's urging prior to Bosworth. John Wells had actually been a supporter of Edward IV, but stood against Richard III. He was 20 years older than his bride, but Cecily was 17 or 18 at the time of her marriage. So while a large age gap, she wasn't a child. This is a common theme in the marriage matches Margaret Beaufort makes. She, being personally aware of how dangerous early pregnancy was, did her best to make sure that none of her wards or family members were married off too early. George of Clarence's daughter, Margaret, whom I'll call Maggie from now on, was 18 the year she married, and Margaret Beaufort encouraged Henry to betroth her to Richard Pole. Henry's first cousin. He was the son of Margaret's older sister, Edith. He was 11 years older than his bride. Cecily was married first in late 1487 or early 1488. Maggie was married in 1491. With Margaret's guidance and organization, Elizabeth of York was finally crowned on the 25th of November, 1487, almost two years after her wedding. That whole pregnancy thing kind of put a pause on it. While Margaret attended to Elizabeth prior to her coronation, she is not recorded being at the event. 
Jasper Tudor again carried the crown. Thomas Boucher wasn't there to crown her, though that honor fell to the new Archbishop of Canterbury, John Morton, a man who deserved his moment for all he had done to make this day possible. He was in his 60s at this point, but would remain in this post until 1500. The day after her daughter-in-law's coronation, Margaret, along with the royal couple, joined the court for a Thanksgiving Mass. Margaret was made a Lady of the Order of the Garter in April 1488. She would be joining Elizabeth of York, who had been appointed to the order during her father's reign. Margaret would divide her time between court with her son and daughter-in-law and her own properties or her husband's properties. While she was legally free, she and Stanley were together at court regularly, and by all accounts, were a normal couple. <laughs> a year and a half after her induction to the order, Margaret was at court for the creation of Arthur as Prince of Wales on the 21st of November 1489. The month wasn't done with joy. Margaret also welcomed her second grandchild, this time a granddaughter, Margaret, named for her, born on the 28th of November 1489. While her younger grandson would get all the headlines, this granddaughter would be the one who saw the future of Margaret's family line. Less than a year later, Henry and his council would meet at Margaret's primary residence outside of London, walking, to begin negotiations for what would become the Treaty of Medina del Campo. This treaty, signed two years later, would see peace between England and Spain and betroth Arthur to Catherine of Aragon the youngest child of the dual monarchs, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. I'll be keeping further stories about this betrothal for Elizabeth of York's episodes, but know that Margaret had a little bit of a hand in it. In June 1491, Margaret was present, along with Elizabeth Woodville, for the birth of Elizabeth and Henry's third child, a second son, Henry. His birth was hardly noticed by chroniclers. Henry would be raised with his sister Margaret in the royal nursery at Eltham. A little more than a year later, little Henry and Margaret were joined by a sister, Elizabeth. Arthur would be moved to Ludlow in 1493. Margaret would visit him when possible. Her nephew, Richard Pole, was appointed Arthur's chamberlain. According to her accounts, Margaret regularly purchased gifts for her grandchildren. While Arthur took preeminence, she seemed to dote on all of them her husband was equally generous. In an impressive historical fact, despite her regular charitable donations, church offerings, and vast collection of jewelry, fine furnishings, and households, Margaret never fell into debt. I wasn't joking when I said Henry made sure she would want for nothing. Her account records from 1489 to 1500 are actually available for researchers to examine. These show she spent vast sums, in a way that is in stark contrast to her portraits, which show her dressed plainly as a widow. She was generous to her servants, as her accounts show. In 1494, Margaret met someone who would have a great influence on both her life and our understanding of her as a person, John Fisher. I've mentioned him in one of her earlier episodes, because many of his stories about her life are where we get more personal information about her. Accounts and basic records can only tell us so much. The notes of ambassadors and the clergy often provide the color of an individual. And in Margaret's case, Fisher would do a great deal of that for us. Her influence would see him rise high. He had joined the priesthood at 22 in 1491. He actually needed papal dispensation since he was too young. Yes, dispensation, not just for marrying your cousins. 
He would become Margaret's personal chaplain in the year they met, and eventually the Bishop of Rochester in 1504, at Henry VII's express request. No doubt Margaret discussed this with her son. And what is actually heartbreaking in light of his end, he was the tutor to Margaret's grandson, Henry. Margaret was present when her younger grandson, the aforementioned Henry, was created Duke of York at the end of October 1494. Henry VII may not have been planning to elevate his younger son this early. His hand was forced by the second pretender of his reign. He was also forced to arrest his step-uncle, William Stanley, in January 1495, due to William supporting this pretender. Henry was heartbroken that his step-uncle had betrayed him. Margaret and her husband would have been devastated, both due to the betrayal and because William had been a large part of their lives. William may not have done anything more than write to those who were plotting, but that was enough. He was executed on the 16th of February that year. Henry actually paid for his burial. While Margaret and her husband were mourning his brother, and still confused by his betrayal, they were honored with a royal visit to their properties in July of the same year. The royal couple and Margaret and her husband apparently got along well and enjoyed their time. Sadly, a few months after the royal couple returned, they lost their youngest child. In September, Princess Elizabeth died at the age of three. Before the year was through, one more tragedy would befall the family. In December, either before or right after Christmas, Jasper Tudor passed away. He was approximately 64. He had been Margaret and her son's protector for decades and had been crucial to Henry becoming king. After the tutor went at Bosworth, he had been rewarded fully for the years he spent keeping Henry safe from, well, almost everyone. He was survived by Catherine Woodville, a younger sister of the Dowager Queen. The couple had been married for 10 years, but had no children. The next year, though, brought joy to the family and Margaret. In March, Mary Tudor was born. A letter Margaret wrote around the time shares her joy and further show her love for her family. She even shared how thankful she was that her daughter-in-law had recovered from an illness. In the same letter, she made a joke at the Dowager Duchess of Burgundy's expense. She was a woman who, despite all her struggles, still had the ability to laugh. Margaret joined her son and daughter-in-law on their progress in the summer of 1496. She was able to visit her estates during this and show them both around. By the summer of 1497, Margaret was 54 years old when Cornish citizens rose up against Henry's heavy taxes. She was in London at her residence, Cold Harbor. The Queen and young Henry of York, it is really weird thinking of Henry VIII ever being a child, joined her there while awaiting news. We can confirm that the Queen and Henry were moved to the Tower when the rebels advanced on London. It's likely but not confirmed that Margaret joined them. Thankfully, de Vere was able to end the uprising. In September, the second and final great pretender of Henry's reign would arrive on English shores, Perkin Warbeck. His attempt to take the country and bring men to his cause went poorly, and he surrendered on October 5th. I do promise you'll get his full story in his purported sister's episodes. At Christmas time that year, the main royal residence of Sheen burnt, in a fire that was sometimes fallaciously blamed on Warbeck. No one died, which is actually amazing for this time period. Remember, no fire suppression systems or alarms, lots of wood and cloth everywhere. It's a bit scary. 
In further evidence of Margaret and her daughter-in-law's strong relationship, the two of them took charge of the arrangements for Arthur's betrothed, Catherine of Aragon, to come to England. They made sure the Spanish ambassador shared that Catherine must practice French, because Queen Elizabeth didn't speak Latin or Spanish, and that the princess should accustom herself to drinking wine because the water wasn't that great. It appears that both women were excited for Catherine's arrival and proud that Arthur would be making such a prestigious match. Margaret was, as always, an organizer, and she prepared for their new family member by organizing the princess's household and staff. The only thing seemingly standing in the way of Catherine's arrival was Warbeck. While the Scottish king, James IV, originally supported Warbeck, even marrying his cousin to the young man, he had tired of his presence. By 1498, he was ready to make peace with England. As part of this, Henry VII betrothed his oldest daughter, Margaret, then nine to James. James was 25 at the time. The Scottish king may well have wanted his young bride sent to him immediately. I'm not suggesting he was planning anything. But there was one person who would never let that happen. Margaret. She knew how wrong things could go, and she was not going to allow this arrangement to happen to her beloved granddaughter. Henry VII was convinced to make the Scottish king wait. Throughout my reading about Margaret, I'm thoroughly impressed with her piety expected at the time, charity, and devotion to learning. While she spent considerably on her clothing, jewelry, furnishings, and buildings, she spent just as considerably on charity. Much of this was focused on the church and religious orders, but there are also notes in her accounts of just random donations to the impoverished. If she had been alive these days, she would have been holding charity events and fundraisers regularly, plus adopting pets from the local Humane Society, all while wearing the most fashionable clothes and jewels, and probably donating plasma on the weekends. Plus, she would have probably endowed a library, or two, or three. Seeing as that she patronized the earliest printing press run by William Caxton in England, this one shouldn't be surprising. I have a story about this press in the final episode of this not-so-mini-series. Margaret's pious devotion was displayed fully in 1499, when she took a perpetual vow of chastity. Interestingly, though femme soul, in every other way, she needed her husband's permission for this, since it was a religious vow. Stanley approved. It was unlikely this was something he had ever worried about within their marriage. Margaret would lose her younger half-brother in early 1499. He and his wife, Cecily, had two daughters, one who died young and a second who died around the time of her father's passing. May that year brought good news, though. Margaret's grandson was married, by proxy, to Catherine of Aragon. This marriage, though, came with strings attached. The Spanish royal couple were not willing to send their daughter to England until Henry VII's throne was truly secure. While they didn't directly order the king to get rid of his pretenders, they strongly implied it would be a good idea. The king took the decision to have Warbeck tried for his crimes, but in further shocking news, also decided to have his cousin-in-law, Edward Plantagenet, tried for the crime of treason. Edward was described by many as simple. He may have been suffering from some mental disability that wasn't understood at the time. Both the young men were found guilty. Warbeck was executed on the 23rd of November, and Edward on the 28th. The king did see to it that Edward was buried at Bisham Abbey. His grandfather, the kingmaker, was buried there as well. 
In September 1500, Margaret would lose one of the last remaining early supporters she had, Archbishop Morton. He was 79 or 80, an impressive age, even if his predecessor had been slightly older. His trust in her had seen him rise, and her trust in him had seen her son rule. Around this time, Margaret began spending less and less time in the court. She had been granted Collie Weston not long after her son's victory at Bosworth. She had expanded the palace and brought it up to her standards. This is where she chose to spend much of her time. Sadly, this palace was dismantled in the 1640s, so you can't visit it. She employed between two and 400 staff at this location. Further proof of Margaret's character comes from her household. She was loved due to her generosity, humor, and kindness. Her staff respected her, and she treated them well. In addition to expressing her piety through her buildings, she would bring entertainers to her property during festive seasons. Margaret also acted as her son's agent for this area. She was trusted, and he knew she could handle it. Apparently, there was a jail and a counting house within the palace grounds. She didn't just manage things for her son. She acted as his judge in local cases. Margaret's future granddaughter-in-law arrived in England on the 2nd of October, 1501. Catherine of Aragon was the third princess of Wales. The first, of course, was Joan, fair maid of Kent, the black prince's wife. And the second is the sometimes overlooked Anne Neville, wife of Edward of Westminster. There wouldn't be another princess of Wales for more than 200 years after her. Margaret likely met Catherine in person for the first time on the 12th of November. The young couple, Arthur was 15 and Catherine 16, were married in person on the 14th. Margaret watched the wedding from a private room with her son and daughter-in-law, making sure the royal couple didn't distract from the young married couple. While marriages at this level were conducted as part of statecraft, Catherine was a beautiful and well-educated bride, and it's likely she and her grandmother-in-law would have shared interest in music, reading, and religion. Catherine was, of course, family even before she married Arthur. She was John of Gaunt's great-great-granddaughter through his only child with his second wife. Yes, everyone is related. Don't worry, papal dispensation had been received. I need to make (laughs) t-shirts. And after this message, you'll hear more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, 
and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Margaret, at her Cold Harbor residence and her husband at his London residence, Derby House, entertained the new couple and court as part of the day's long moving festivities that celebrated their wedding. With the young couple headed to Wales, it was time for further marriage arrangements. By 1502, Margaret's oldest granddaughter, Margaret, was 12, still far too young for marriage according to both the king's mother and his wife. It really does sound like these two kept Henry in check. The king decided it was time to formalize her betrothal, though, and a ceremony was held in January. A proxy marriage would occur in January the following year. Even with these, there wasn't a rush to send Princess Margaret, now technically Queen Margaret of Scotland, north to live with her husband. Lady Margaret, though, wouldn't be in England for her granddaughter's betrothal ceremony. Granted, the groom wasn't there either. Instead, she was in Calais, pursuing Louis XII for a debt owed to her family by the French crown dating back decades. She wasn't successful and returned to England. She would sign the debt over to her son two years later. Not long after her return, the course of history was set in a way no one could have expected. 1502, which had started out so well, was not a kind year to anyone in the royal family. On the 2nd of April, Prince Arthur died of either tuberculosis or the sweating sickness. He was 15. The family had now lost three children, Arthur, Elizabeth, and a young boy, Edmund. While there were three surviving children, there was only one boy. King Henry and Queen Elizabeth were completely devastated. It was shocking news. The reports of their attempt to comfort each other are heartbreaking to read. As I've mentioned, once a child reached their early to mid-teens, they usually had a rather good chance of living into adulthood. In addition, so much had been focused on Arthur as the future of the family. Arthur's wife, Catherine, of course survived. Kingdoms would be torn apart trying to discover if their marriage had been consummated. In case you're curious, here's my opinion. It didn't matter. Not one bit. Papal dispensation was received for either the case of it being or not being consummated. If a couple could marry within the forbidden degrees of separation with dispensation, then it was good enough to dispense with the same familiarity created by a consummated marriage. Catherine would be the spiritual and legal wife of both Arthur and his younger brother because the Pope said it was okay. And until someone changed the church, the Pope was in charge of these things. Oddly, there aren't records of Margaret's response to the news, though she did record the event in her Book of Hours. In February 1503, Elizabeth of York gave birth to her last child, a daughter named Catherine, on the 2nd of February. Nine days later, on the 11th of February, her 37th birthday, Elizabeth of York died. I'll discuss her possible causes of death in her episode. Her daughter would follow her a week later. I'm unsure of Margaret's whereabouts. While she had attended the previous royal births, at this point she was spending more time away from court. Due to the baby coming early, she may not have arrived in time. 
Margaret's piety may have helped her through this period. Her organizational skills would see her outline court procedures for royal funerals. As many of you will know, Henry did consider remarrying, even at one point considering his former daughter-in-law, but this never came about. He would remain a widower until his death. With her daughter-in-law's death, Margaret became the highest-ranked woman at court. She continued to advise her son and played a role in the lives of her grandchildren. While everyone was mourning, her oldest granddaughter's marriage needed to be looked after. Leaving on the 27th of July, Margaret and her father began to travel north. At the property at Collie Weston, they were greeted by Lady Margaret on the 5th of July. From there, younger Margaret would continue on to Scotland, crossing the border on the 1st of August. She would meet her husband for the first time at this point. Based on the frequency of Queen Margaret's pregnancies, it's unlikely the marriage was consummated immediately. She was still only 14. Her first child was born in February 1507, four years after her marriage. From that point on, Queen Margaret was pregnant yearly, or every second year, until her husband's death in 1513. She even had his posthumous son seven months after his death. They would have six children in six years, though only one son would survive to adulthood. While Margaret would write to her granddaughter regularly, the two Margarets would not see each other again. At this point, Margaret was 60, and slowly but surely, those around her would begin to pass. While her daughter-in-law had been taken too young, many of these had been a large part of her life before her son became king. Her loyal servant, Reginald Bray, died on the 15th of August, 1503, just days after the king and princess had arrived at her property. While Bray had been a commoner, he was instrumental in the running of Henry VII's government and one of Margaret's favorites. He had been in her service for approximately 40 years. A little less than a year later, Margaret's husband, Thomas Stanley, would die at the age of 69. They had been married for more than 30 years, and while it wasn't a traditional marriage, they did respect and support each other. She may not have been heartbroken, but I have no doubt she would have been sad. While the couple didn't live together, they did work together closely. Catherine of Aragon was still a concern for the royal court. While she was Arthur's widow, Henry VII still wanted the prestige of a Spanish match, and plans were made for her to marry Henry of York, who was quickly elevated to the Prince of Wales. This was all put into doubt when her mother Isabella died in November of 1504. Because Catherine's parents' throne was a personal union between the two of them, it became an actual union in the next generation. Her mother's death actually lowered her value on the marriage market, since her older sister, Juana, or Joanna, inherited the larger kingdom of Castile. Catherine's father still had control of Aragon, but it was a weaker and smaller kingdom. The younger Henry and Catherine would eventually wed, as you all know, but only once he became king. While Catherine was awaiting her fate, she was made to live in circumstances that were near poverty at times. It's likely that Margaret felt for her, but also needed to follow royal and social protocols. As an unmarried widow, Catherine couldn't easily live in the same residence as her betrothed. Margaret's patronage of religious institutions had been constant throughout her life, but as she aged, she also began a greater patronage of educational institutions. Remember, she was wealthy and could do all of this while still living lavishly. She would have felt it was her obligation as someone who had benefited so much. 
in 1504, a license was granted to her as patron for the founding of Christ College in Cambridge. Christ College had originally been called God's House, but the name was changed when Margaret became the patron. Her coat of arms, which is honestly an amazing visual, is placed throughout the building of the college. I'll include these in the show notes and throughout the show's social media pages. They are truly beautiful. This wasn't the only educational benefice of hers, and there are too many to list here. But her support of educational causes shows a woman who wanted to make sure the next generation had access to the learning that she had benefited from. Remember, while women could not attend university, the men that did were often employed as tutors to the daughters of the aristocracy. Educating teachers is something the world should remember to do well. Margaret was, of course, getting older. In 1505, she began spending less time at her vast property of Collie Weston. Instead, she stayed closer to London at Hatfield, owned by her stepson, James Stanley, the Bishop of Ely, and at Croydon, held by the Archbishop of Canterbury, at this point William Warham. This may be due to the struggle of traveling so far to visit London, which she still tried to do regularly. Her close proximity to London would make things easier for her son in 1506, when he had a surprise royal guest. Now, royal visits are often carefully planned, with months of negotiations through ambassadors and preparations to display the splendor of the reigning monarch. This one, however, was completely unexpected. In January that year, Juana, Queen of Castile, sister to Catherine of Aragon, and her consort, Philip of Castile, were blown off course while sailing to Spain. Philip, sometimes called Philip the Handsome, this was probably a bit of flattery. There are portraits that suggest the opposite. Had, much like his father-in-law, married up, and in doing so, would found the Habsburg dynasty that would rule huge swaths of Europe throughout the next century. While the visit was unplanned, Henry VII and Margaret took full advantage of it. She was the leading woman at English court, since her son was unmarried and her only granddaughter in the country was rather young. In addition to all the normal agreeing on avoiding war with each other, Henry VII and Margaret, without a doubt, wanted one thing. The brothers of John de la Pole, Edmund and Richard. Both the younger de la Poles had risen up against Henry with their brother. It was rather lucky for Henry that this ship blew off course, because the de la Pole brothers had been the guests of Philip. The two kings agreed to a treaty that included the return of the de la Poles and the marriage of Henry's youngest daughter, Mary, to Philip and Juana's heir, Charles. Margaret's role in this was to act as hostess and to prepare her young granddaughter to meet the royal couple. First impressions are always important. Things look good for England. Henry VII's treaty saw the older de la Pole brother return to England in March 1506, where he would be housed in the tower until 1513, when Henry VIII decided he didn't want this pretender around. Sadly, in 1507, things began to go downhill for Margaret's family. Henry VII became seriously unwell. He had been having health problems for at least three years at this point. Margaret would move into Richmond Palace to look after him throughout this illness. She was 64, and he was only 51. But in this period, those were near ancient ages. Henry would recover, and in June, the whole family celebrated young Henry's first joust. The future, larger-than-life king was 16. Margaret had bought him the saddle he would use. I said she could be a bit of fun. 
In December the following year, the young Mary Tudor was married, by proxy, to Charles, Juana and Philip's son, who was now the Duke of Burgundy following the death of his father in 1506. Mary was 11 and Charles 6. They were also in different countries. This marriage would be dissolved in the reign of Mary's brother, Henry VIII. Mary's wedding would be the last family celebration to be had before the greatest disaster of Margaret's life occurred. In February of 1509, Henry VII became unwell again, and this time he wouldn't recover. He would die on the 21st of April at only 52. His death was likely caused by tuberculosis. He would, of course, be succeeded by his son, Henry, as Henry VIII. Henry VII's will is as one would expect for a wealthy king. Generous. What's interesting, though, are those he named as executors. The first wasn't one of the many religious leaders a king would traditionally select. No. Instead, it was his mother. Yes, until the end of his life, the person he trusted the most was Margaret. He knew she would see his final wishes carried out. She was assisted by the Archbishop of York, Christopher Bainbridge, and Bishop Fisher, of course. Margaret's beloved son was now gone, but her grandson would rule for a very long time. She was unwell herself, though. Her grandson's rule started out with a claim. He was a popular young king. He's often compared to his grandfather, Edward IV, handsome, tall, and dashing. He, like this same grandfather, was also young when his rule began. Edward IV had only been 18 when he was acclaimed king. Henry was 17. While he wouldn't need an official regent and probably wouldn't have put up with one, he didn't seem to mind having an unofficial one, Margaret. Throughout the first months of his reign, she assisted him as needed. The loyalty she had built up with the powerful lay and churchmen in the kingdom was slowly transferred to her grandson. And these men, including Bishop Fisher, would become influential in Henry VIII's early reign. At Henry's first council, his father's hated tax collectors were ordered arrested. Margaret may have encouraged this and encouraged Henry to have the men executed. While horrific, it was brilliant political theater and made the men perfect scapegoats for any of Henry VII's unpopular taxes. It is horrible, though. While some of the projects that Henry VII requested in his will wouldn't be started until after her death, Margaret focused her last months on securing her grandson's throne and following through on her son's last requests. She was near the end, though. Had Henry VII lived longer, maybe Margaret would have as well. His passing would have saddened her beyond words. Margaret did have a bit more energy left. She was granted walking as her own holding by her grandson on the 19th of May, 1509. On the 11th of June, Henry VIII married Catherine of Aragon. Margaret may have been present. She had been in the area. Then on the 24th of June, Margaret watched her grandson and his wife's joint coronation from behind a screen in Westminster Abbey. This was her last hurrah. On the 29th of June, one day after Henry VIII's birthday, she would die at 66. In her will, Margaret referred to herself as Princess Margaret and I think that this is more than fair. Bishop Fisher was her chief executor, and would also lead her funeral service. His great respect for her is shown in not just the words he shared, but in his actions. He worked tirelessly to see to it that her final requests were met, and looked after the request of her son that she hadn't had time to complete. I think the behaviors of those around her stand testament to the awesome woman she was.
I strongly believe history should make those studying it feel deeply. And Margaret's story does that for me. I'm nervous when things go wrong for her. I'm excited when they go well. I can feel her pain missing her child and her joy when he succeeds. It helps that there are plentiful sources for her life, and for that I am eternally grateful. So, the question. Would Margaret Beaufort be a better ruler than the one who ruled instead? Well, she lived through parts of the reigns of six kings. Henry VI, Edward IV, Edward V, Richard III, Henry VII, and Henry VIII. Which should I answer for? If I take them in order, Henry VI, yes, but I think we agreed most people would. Edward IV, probably equal, all things considered. Edward V, yes, but he was a child and didn't actually rule, and none of it is his fault. Richard III, yes, due to his unpopularity. Her son, well, Henry VII, I think equal, but it's because she ruled with him. And finally, her grandson. Yes, well, because he was Henry VIII, and now I'm scared Tudor fans are going to come after me. <laughs> but looking at the king whose reign really matters in Margaret's story, Henry VII, I think it didn't matter in most ways which of them ruled in name. They were a team. As you'll see in the next few episodes, this team included Margaret's adored daughter-in-law, Elizabeth of York. This team stabilized England after years of warfare. They weren't perfect, but they were overall good. The two women looked out for the interest of the younger ladies in the family and didn't let them be treated as tools for ambitious men. Henry VII was the face the world saw and an active king, but he couldn't have held it together without his wife or his mother. He's an often overlooked king, missed because his son is so intense. But I've always enjoyed reading his story. His mother's love and support from afar are the things an exile would dream of. She made sure he survived. She financially supported him, and she planned his eventual win. He rewarded her with her own agency and wealth. He made sure she would wish for nothing. And more importantly, he listened to her because he knew all she had done for him. In Margaret's story, it's important to remember how treacherous this time was. Her own husbands could have turned on her at various points. Her son had been promised a safe return on multiple occasions, only for one of them to realize he wouldn't be safe. She seemed to have trusted Jasper Tudor completely with her son's life. But that was about it. Everyone else she was just hoping wouldn't turn on them. It is unimaginable for most of us today. Without her, he would have had little guidance at the start of his kingship. While English by birth, he'd spent little time there. Most of his life was spent abroad. He had to learn how government worked in England, and his mother was there to guide him. An often overlooked character who is maligned in historical fiction, in Margaret's story, is her final husband, Stanley. The more I look into him, the more impressed I am. He really saw the way to land on the right side of history. I think it's unfair to hold his planning against him. He was careful with how he moved through life. It's important to remember that while Margaret was his wife, he also had his own children to look after and protect. He risked his oldest son's life to support Margaret's son. Because everyone will be curious, I will provide my answer to the question, what happened to Edward V and Richard of York in my anniversary episode in mid-May? 
This episode should also fall at the end of this not-so-mini-series, so I'll be using it to conclude this undertaking. I do look forward to reading and answering your questions, so get them in, as I mentioned at the start of this episode. And I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod.